The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Last week we looked at a couple of things. Uh, we looked at um, just a definition of assurance, and we saw that assurance is different than justification. Justification is God's declaration of you based on faith in Christ that you are not guilty of all your sins. It's full forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. It's something that happens in the heavenly realms. And once it happens in the heavenlies, it can never be revoked. You can't lose your justification. It's impossible. The thing is, what happens in the heavenlies doesn't always necessarily connect immediately to the earthly realm. You could be justified, this is uh, basically Brooks's point, you could be justified and not have a strong and solid healthy assurance of your justification. The two are somewhat independent. And whereas your justification is a steady state kind of binary yes, no, either you're justified or you're not justified. You can't be a little more justified. You can't grow in justification. You can't be more justified today than you were last week. These things are impossible. You either are or you are not justified. Okay? But assurance really does wax and wane. It really does increase and decrease. Your sense of your state with God can get stronger and it can get weaker. And whereas justification absolutely is not in any way connected to your good works, must not be connected to your good works. It's an insult to think that you can use your good works to pay for your sins. Impossible. And so we are not in any way justified by works, but simply by faith in Christ. On the other hand, assurance is very much connected to your works, very much connected to how you're doing, your performance, uh, connected to how you're doing in, in putting sin to death. It's connected to all these things. And so as you are doing these things, as you're walking in obedience in the power of the Spirit, your assurance will go up and it will get stronger. And as, on the other hand, you are uh, yielding to sin and to temptation and drifting and not being faithful in the ordinances, going to church, reading the Bible, the other things that God's given, your assurance will decrease. It will wax and it will wane depending on how you're doing. And uh, so that's the point. And so the the issue here and the whole the whole book is the nature of assurance what what makes it grow stronger what makes it grow weaker how can we have a healthy assurance and then he gave us some weighty propositions on assurance and we worked through those last time um, one of the ones that we kind of skirted over toward the end is that assurance is not for arminians now what do we mean by that by arminians we mean those that are focusing on free will on human free will on human decisions all right, they, uh, it's kind of the opposite of what we call the doctrines of grace or the sovereignty of God and salvation. Uh, these, this approach to uh, salvation says that it really depends on you and that you must be faithful and you must continue in your obedience and all that. You can see that Arminians, therefore, can really have no assurance of salvation. It's not for them. It's impossible. You can't have assurance of salvation in the Arminian system, and they'll say that. Uh, it's not part of their scheme. Uh, rather, you need to keep cranking it out. Now, you can see why assurance of salvation would be very, very important even in your service to God. Suppose you have no solid assurance of your salvation and yet you're doing good works. What's the problem there? Well, what confusion could come to you on that issue? You don't know whether you're going to heaven or hell, but you're doing all these religious activities. You're doing all these good works. What could the problem be? Yeah, doing these things in your own strength. How about in your understanding of salvation? What could the problem be there? Absolutely. You might, you might actually practically and effectively come to deny justification by faith alone apart from works. Because you don't know whether you're going to heaven or hell and you need to keep working, keep doing these things, keep fasting more, keep praying. And you're constantly concerned about your state with God. And so all of your good works really come into suspicion, don't they? On the other hand, how beautiful and how sweet and how lovely are good works done by a fully assured Christian. You see, they're not doing it in any way to, to uh, prove or to, to accomplish their own salvation, but just as a natural flowering of their salvation, just out of love for God and out of love for neighbor, they're doing these things, you see? And so assurance really affects everything in, in so many ways. And this is this book, Heaven on Earth, one of the great uh, treatises on Christian assurance. So that's just kind of a summary of the things that we talked about last time. Now today, we're going to look uh, across the top of the, of the book, kind of in a general sense, then we're going to dig in. Um, 
there are a number of headings. The first is hindrances to assurance and how they may be overcome. So Brooks is going to talk to us about what hinders your assurance. What, what, what hinders you? What holds you back from a full assurance of faith in Christ? And how can we overcome them? He's going to talk about nine hindrances to assurance and how they may be overcome. I wonder this about these Puritans, how they crank out these endless lists. It's incredible because each one of these has eight subpoints. This is why I have a 14-page outline and didn't feel that I did a good job on it. Um, I mean, they just go on and on. They're very good at breaking things up into component parts. So he's dealing first with this issue of hindrances to assurance. The next thing he's going to look at, major heading, is motives to provoke Christians to be restless until they have obtained a well-grounded assurance of their eternal blessedness. In other words, he wants to provoke you um, to work on this issue of assurance. He wants you to be stimulated to make your calling and election sure. He wants you to work at it, and he gives you motives why you should work on this issue of assurance. So we're going to talk about that. Eleven motives. We're not going to talk about all eleven, but he, that's what he does. And he gives eleven motives or reasons. Then next, we're going to look at ways and means, practically, uh, how you can gain assurance of salvation. What do you do? How can we go about this? How can we grow and strengthen ourselves in assurance of salvation? Also, nine uh, ways and means that he says of gaining a well-grounded assurance. And then the, the sixth chapter, uh, he gives us the differences between a true and counterfeit assurance, between sound assurance, a healthy assurance, and what you could call presumption. Presumption. So he's distinguishing between what's true and what is counterfeit. And then he answers questions on assurance. So that's the whole book. Do you see it? Just in, in big, big picture. He's dealing with how assurance is hindered. Basically, first of all, he gives us a definition, and then he talks about assurance in a general way. And then he starts digging in and says, what holds us back from assurance? What hinders us? How can we overcome them? And then he tries to stimulate you to kind of be at this, be working at this matter of assurance of salvation, and then tells you very practically how you can gain assurance and then how you can distinguish between true assurance and presumption. Okay? You see the big picture. All right? Well, let's dig into some of the details. Let's talk about this issue of hindrances to assurance and how they may be overcome on the first page of your outline. The first hindrance that he talks about is despair. Despair. All right? The despairing of obtaining mercy. Now, I believe that despair is a very powerful weapon of the devil. I believe any time that you're feeling despair, you can be sure that the devil is behind it, that Satan is behind it. Satan wants you to feel despair. What is despair? It's a lack of hope. A lack of hope, a hopelessness. Depression is related to this. A sense of discouragement and despair. I think the devil very much works this way. And, and I talked about this in my abortion sermon in January, that the devil must do this because he can't win if we go out and take the field. You see that? Not just on the issue of abortion, but on any kind of Christian endeavor. If you go out and take the field against him, he will lose. And he knows it. Because you have the Christian armor. You have the full armor. And he can't penetrate it. So you're defensively, you're set. He can't hurt you. Furthermore, he can't withstand your offensive weapons, 2 Corinthians 10. They're powerful for the demolishing of strongholds. And so his, his arguments, his strongholds can't stand up against your offensive weaponry. So his best bet is to intimidate you from taking the field at all. You see that, don't you? And so he's going to be working discouragement and despair and to make you feel weak and listless in your Christian life, make you feel despair. Well, this is all the more true in the issue of assurance. You can see that despair is the exact dead opposite of assurance, isn't it? I mean, they're exactly opposite things. So if he can work despair, it's a great hindrance to assurance because they're polar opposites. Now, what does Brooks do? Well, the first thing he does is show you what, what a terrible state of the soul despair is. And he kind of rebukes you out of it. He says, this is a great dishonor to God. It's great dishonor to God. This is what he says. Despairing thoughts make a man fight against God with his own weapons. They make a man cast out all the cordials of the Spirit against the wall as if they're things of no value. They make a man suck poison out of the sweetest promises. That's a terrible state to be in. Despair makes every sweet bitter and every bitter exceeding bitter. It puts gall and wormwood into the sweetest wine. 
Uh, despair is a terrible mental state to be in. And so he's working very strongly on this. He reasons hard with despairing people. He calls it a great sin. He says, is not despair an exceeding vile and contemptible sin? Is it not a dishonor to God, a reproach to Christ, and a murderer of souls? It does without a doubt proclaim the devil a conqueror and lifts him above Christ himself. And so somehow the devil were more powerful than Christ. Despair is an evil that flows from the greatest evil in the world. It flows from unbelief, doesn't it? There's a direct connection between unbelief and despair. Uh, it flows also from ignorance and from misapprehensions of God and his grace. So despair is therefore the special work of the devil, as we've been saying. It flows from Satan, who forever being cast out of paradise, labors with all his art and might to work poor souls to despair of ever entering paradise. This is what he does. He says that despair was Judas's uh, damning sin. He talks about how even Manasseh, who was a monster, God was gracious to him when he repented and turned. And God heard his prayer and restored him to his throne. So even a monster like this, who is still remembered generations later for his wickedness. You know, Jeremiah the prophet said, because of what Manasseh did, I will not hear prayer concerning Jerusalem. And he was dead and gone by then. So the things he did were, was, were terrible, terrible sins. And yet he obtained mercy from God. But Judas, filled with despair, perished and was lost. And despair overwhelmed his soul. Consider, he says, all the vile sinners who have been saved like Saul the persecutor. He reasons with us. He says, consider also the freeness of God's grace given to sinners apart from what they deserve. Consider the perfection of God's love, totally grounded in himself, not in the sinner. And consider the primacy of God's mercy. So what is he doing to overcome despair? He's working on your thinking, isn't he? He's trying to show you these doctrines, the truth on which your soul can be grounded. He's driving out despair with the truth of the word of God. God's mercies are above all his works, above all ours, too. Isn't that wonderful? God's mercy is above everything we do. Uh, it is higher than all of that. His mercy is without measures and rules. All the acts and attributes of God sit at the feet of mercy. Despair is therefore a great insult to the precious blood of Christ, isn't it? Listen to what Brooks says. Again, tell me, O despairing souls, do you not do infinite wrong to the precious blood of the Lord Jesus? Does not your despair proclaim to all the world that there is no such worth and virtue, no such power and efficacy in the blood of Christ, as indeed there is. Oh, how will you answer this to Christ in that day wherein his blood shall speak? Don't insult the blood of Christ by your despair. That's what he's saying. And then consider also that God has brought others out of the gulf of despair. Others have been down there. Asaph in Psalm 77, Will the Lord reject us forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? These are the questions of a despairing heart, aren't they? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And Psalm 77 answers no, but in the end, God will be merciful again to his people. And then there's Jonah, right? What a, what a character he was. But Jonah got thrown overboard and started to sink. And he says in Jonah 2.4, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. So he was feeling that despair of being banished from God because of his rebellion. And yet in faith, inside the fish, he looked again you know, spiritually toward God's holy temple. Brooke says this, O despairing souls, despairing souls, you see that others whose conditions have been as bad, if not worse than yours, have obtained mercy. God has turned their hell into heaven. He has remembered them in their low state. He has pacified their raging consciences and quieted their distracted souls. He has wiped all tears from their eyes and has been a wellspring of life to their hearts. Therefore, remember who is your rest and kick no more by despair against the wooings of divine love. Isn't that wonderful? You know, when I read this, I don't just minister to myself because actually I'm very rarely in a state of de despair. It's not a common thing for me. But as a pastor, I may actually face people who are in this state. And not only, therefore, do I learn how I might comfort myself, but how I could, as a pastor, minister to others who are feeling this. What approach does he take to minister to the soul? And so you should learn not only uh, for yourself, but also that you might take this and benefit somebody else. Who knows, but maybe in the next month or two, you'd be dealing with somebody who's got a, a, a very dark view of their own soul and the state of their soul. And you feel that you could minister in this way. There's a lot to learn this way. A second hindrance that he talks about is the disputing about things that are too high for our thoughts. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, two things in particular. 
uh, specifically disputing with Satan about the eternal decrees and counsel of God. Am I predestined before the foundation of the world or not? Predestination is a biblical doctrine, but uh, it's really very difficult to be uh, ruminating over these things that are too high for us. I can't resolve it. I can't figure it out. How could everything be predestined before the foundation of the world? These secret counsels of God, and you're getting yourself all worked up. Getting yourself all worked up. This is not, uh, not going to minister assurance to your, to your souls. Not at all. Now, the doctrine of predestination can. No, no doubt about that. But wondering how the decrees of God fit together. The secret things belong to the Lord, the Scripture says. And uh, secondly, he says, just disputing with Satan at all is a great hindrance to assurance. He's a great arguer. Have you never read in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? He always has a rejoinder, doesn't he? He always has something he can answer back. But the archangel Michael didn't dispute with the devil. He just said, the Lord rebuke you and did his business and was on. Don't engage. I, it bothers me when I hear people, pastors and others, talking to the devil in prayer and all this kind of thing. This is not for us to do. He's too smart for us. He's too tricky, too powerful. He wants to engage us into, into a debate. Archangel Michael said, the Lord rebuke you, and that was it. All right, well, if, if the Archangel Michael does that, then I think we should do no more than that. So disputing with the devil about anything can lead you into uh, discouragement rather than assurance. That's a hindrance to assurance. Now, this one is, uh, I think, very important, and it's a, kind of an interesting one on the heels of our study from uh, John Owen. John Owen, the mortification of sin, you're looking inward to find sin. Search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any sin inside me, right? Well, here, what Brooks says is that the failure to, uh, the lack of self-examination can be a hindrance to assurance. In this case, then, it's opposite from what Owen was doing. Here, we're looking inward for things that God did. Works of grace in the heart. Now, you need to know what they are, but here's how it works. If you have an accurate assessment of the native state of the human heart, what the human heart is natural, naturally capable of doing and what it is not naturally capable of doing, right? And you also have a, a list, therefore, from Scripture of those things that, that grace alone can work in the heart, right? If you could find from Scripture those things that God alone can put into a heart and then you look inward and see those things in your heart, that's a great form of assurance, isn't it? And if you were to look inward and say, well, I see these things, but that's natural to the human heart. No, it isn't. You know, such as a hungering and thirsting after righteousness and a yearning for personal holiness and all of these other things that we'll talk about. But if you look inward and you see those things there and you know that only God can work that in a heart, that's a great form of assurance, isn't it? But what if you never do that? What if you never take the time to assess yourself, to look inward, to see what God has done? Not just outside of you in the world, but in you. What has God done in me? And so he cites here, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, when you read that, what do you think? Well, give me the test questions, God. I need to know how I can test myself. Well, that's part of what we're going to seek to do tonight. You know, that yellow sheet, I think, will give you some indications of what God does in a heart when he does this work of regeneration. But in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, test yourself. Don't you know that uh, Christ is in you, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? Well, doesn't that leave you, it leaves me at least, saying, what's the test? Tell me what it is. I want to know how I can test my heart to know whether Christ is in me or not. And I think that's what the Puritans did probably better than any uh, movement in history, is to give us what that test is, what we call these marks of regeneration. What are the things that God does in a heart when they are truly saved? All right, now, in some cases, self-examination, what you could call morbid introspection, can hinder assurance. That is true. But that's not what Brooks is talking about here. In some cases, self-examination can be a great cause of assurance when we see all that God has done in us by grace. The key, then, is learning to identify what could only have been done by God, and then when you see it in your souls, you rejoice. You can rejoice, what it should say. Oh, you staggering, wavering souls, you tossed and disquieted souls, know for a certain that you will never come to experience the sweetness of assurance till your eyes be turned inward, till you live more at home than abroad, till you come to discern between a work of nature and a work of grace. Underline that. That's it. That's the key. You've got to be able to discern between what is natural and what could only have been done by God. 
And when you can discern that from Scripture, then you are ready, you're primed for assurance. Do you see how it works? Let's find out what those things are. But he says, you've got to learn to discern the difference between nature and grace. So you put a difference between the precious and the vile, between God's work and Satan's work. When this is done, you will find the clouds to scatter and the sun of righteousness to shine upon you and the day star of assurance to rise in you. Isn't that wonderful? And I, I think this has been, you know, a kind of a journey for this church. You know, to move away from a kind of a simplistic, you know, acceptance of every sinner's prayer and every baptism and every card sign and every simplistic external mark and saying these are no sure and certain signs of regeneration. Regular church attendance and membership, no sure and certain sign. Being active in committees, no sure and certain sign of regeneration. Well, then it's left us asking, then what are the sure and certain signs of regeneration? And that's where, what we're working on here in this book. Now, this, in, this self-examination is not a quick or light searching, but a thorough probing of the heart with the Holy Spirit's help. It is not every spiritual movement of the soul that is a true work of grace, but uh, some are, and we want to find out what they are. So we're going to discern those. All right, a fourth hindrance that he gives us here is the entertaining of mistaken views about God's work of grace. The way to remove this impediment is wisely and seriously to distinguish between renewing grace and restraining grace, between common grace and special grace, between temporary grace and sanctifying grace. Now, what do we mean by temporary grace? Well, understand in one way of thinking, any good thing that God does for a sinner is grace. You understand that, don't you? It's what we could call common grace. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We got a lot of that today, didn't we? And now we're getting the sun. So God has been doubly blessing us today. We get both the sunshine and we get the rain. Is that grace or not? Of course it's grace. We didn't get what we truly deserved. We deserved fire and brimstone. Instead, we got rain. We got life-giving water from heaven. And so that is grace. But is that regenerating grace? No, I wouldn't think so. Christ's statement makes it plain. He sends it in both the wicked and the good. So it's not regenerating grace to have raindrops falling on your head. That is not going to save your soul. And there are actually many of those types of, of common grace blessings, which are no sure and certain sign that you're going to heaven. What we have to do is find out what are. And so I actually went, he alludes in, in the book here to the nature of true grace from Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, another book that he wrote. So I took the time to type it out for you, and it's also on your yellow sheet. Let's take a minute and go through them. He gives us 10 here. The nature of true grace as distinguished from common grace are those things that do not convert. You understand what we're talking about here. So this made it to your Marks of Regeneration sheet. Number one, true grace transforms the whole person, making them entirely new inside and out. That's what grace does. It changes you radically inside and out. It changes everything. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Everything is new. You're, you're transformed. You're a new creature. Okay? True grace does that. True grace enables a person to be conversant about the highest and best objects, the most precious objects of our faith, not merely the low objects that are within easy reach of reason. We're talking about the best of the best. Grace works that in your heart. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about face-to-face -face fellowship with God. We're talking about perfection and holiness and regenerated bodies, you know, the resurrection body. These things are not too high for somebody who's been transformed by grace. This is where they live. This is what they love. They're conversant about these things, and they're attracted to them, and they know them, and all the more as they grow, but this is what grace does. Thirdly, true grace enables a Christian when he is himself. You can circle that. <laughs> true grace enables a Christian when he is himself to do spiritual actions with real pleasure and delight, not as a grievous burden under which he chafes. Do you see that? Now, why did he add when he is himself? When are you not yourself? When sin has the upper hand, right? When you're behaving like a pagan. When you're behaving like sin is your master. Well, then are your spiritual burdens a joy and delight? No, they're not. 
But when you are yourself, namely who you really are, and you can say, is this valid language? Oh, absolutely. If you look in Romans chapter 7, he says, as it is, it is no longer I who do it, sin, but it is sin living in me that does it. Well, that's kind of strange. What is he, uh, you know, d dual personality kind of guy? Well, yeah, in a manner of speaking. And you know what I'm talking about. There's this vile thing in us called sin. And sin has no interest in submitting to Christ's gentle yoke. None. And so it, you're, it's like you're dragging this kicking and screaming spoiled brat along with you the whole way, the whole journey of sanctification. I don't want to pray. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to read the Bible. That's the way it is. That's sin, right? But that regenerated new nature within you is delighted to do those things. It's not a burden. And when you are walking in the power of the Spirit, that new nature has, without a doubt, the upper hand. It's who you really are. And in the end, that old nature will be utterly done away with. We will be perfect in spirit and body. That's wonderful. It's not yet, but it's wonderful. But when you are yourself, you do spiritual actions with real pleasure and delight. They're not a grievous burden under which you chafe. Do you see how this weeds out the wheat from the chaff? See, a non-Christian that's just going through the motions, those motions are a burden to them, aren't they? It's hard for them to pray. It's hard for them to sit and listen to a Bible study. It's hard for them to be at worship. These things are a burden for them. They do them, but they're a burden. Number four, true grace makes a man most careful and most fearful about his own heart, constantly examining it concerning its progress. I mean, we are concerned about what's going on in our hearts, aren't we? We're concerned about the progress of our internal spiritual nature about our hearts. What are we taking in? What are we doing? What is our behavior pattern? How is it going? Are we starting to sin? Are we yielding to temptations? We're watching over it. True grace makes you careful about these things. Somebody who doesn't hasn't received true grace is not concerned about these things, the matters of the heart. Fifthly, true grace will work a man's heart to love and cleave to the strictest and holiest ways and things of God for their purity and sanctity in the face of all dangers and hardships. You could just write on number five, this is holiness. Holiness. True grace works holiness in you, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard, even if it costs you a lot. It's what you want, isn't it? And that's what grace works in you. Number six, true grace will enable a man to step over the world's crown to take up Christ's cross. You'd rather have Christ's cross than the world's crown, wouldn't you? If you're truly born again, it's like, give me Christ, give me death, give me suffering, give me being with Jesus, Philippians 3, rather than all of the accolades the world can give, I have no interest in them. Just like Daniel said to Belshazzar, keep your purple robe and your gold chain for yourself. I have zero interest in them, none. But he would rather suffer with God's people. And uh, so number six, that's what grace does. Number seven, true grace, what he calls sanctifying or renewing grace, puts the soul upon spiritual duties from spiritual and intrinsic motives, not from earthly, external earthly motives. See you later, Pharisees. Okay? You know, they, don't, they make long prayers so that they can be seen by men. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you have received your reward in full. Paid in full, nothing on Judgment Day for you, for your prayers. Same thing with fasting, same thing with all of your spiritual duties. Why? Because they're done for external reasons, that people might see you and you might gain some kind of praise or benefit in this world from them. But the truly born-again person isn't doing them for those reasons. They're doing them from internal spiritual reasons, intrinsic to themselves. You see that? It's an internal thing. Number nine, true grace leads the soul to rest upon Christ as his highest good, his ultimate aim and goal. Christ is delightful to the soul of a truly born-again person. Can't talk enough about Christ, can't think enough about Christ. You know, yearning to see him, want him, he's your treasure, he's your pleasure, he's what you want. He is the focus of your heart and your soul. You're excited to hear more about Christ. You want to hear more about his miracles, about his great teachings. You want to hear more about his blood and his resurrection, his triumph over the grave. These things are not a burden to you. They're the delight of your soul. Not bored with Jesus, you know. But you love and are delighted in talking about Jesus. And number 10, true grace will enable a soul to sit down satisfied with the naked enjoyment of Christ. Christ without honor, Christ without riches, Christ without health, Christ without success, Christ alone is enough for you. 
And uh, we can see that in Paul and Silas. It's enough for them just sing, singing in prison, getting beaten for Jesus. That's enough for them. They're totally satisfied, happiest people in the whole city of Philippi. All right, Christ is enough, sufficient. But a uh, hypocrite or a non-truly born-again person, Christ is not enough, not in any way, shape, or form. These other things are very much the point, the health and the wealth and the honors and the accolades and the earthly benefits that come. In some cases, even from religion, like the Pharisees. That's the list that he gives us. Now, that's from Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, but if you have wrong views of grace, it will hinder you in assurance. If, on the other hand, you see these ten things, and then you look inward and you find them in your heart, that's a doorway to assurance, isn't it? And it's a great assurance and great encouragement. Any questions uh, about this list before we go on? Take a minute as you look over. Anything you don't understand? Well, I would think a godly sorrow would be very much God-focused. Because of you, God, and because of my relationship with you and what you've done, I'm very grieved that I've done this and very sad about it. Despair is not God-focused at all. It's turning away from God. It's, it's just the, the sinner in his sin without any hope, without any Christ, really, without any blood, without any resurrection, just the sinner in his sin, marinating in his sin. And that's despair, and that's very dishonoring to God, uh, in a way saying that the blood of Christ is not enough for your sin. I think that's the difference. The godly sorrow is very much God-focused and saying, really, it's exactly because of you. That's why I'm sad that I did this. I, I would say I think that's the difference. Another, any other questions about this? Yeah. Well, that's what Brooks said. Uh, but I, I, think, I think what it means is it's the one that finished him off. You can put it that way. Because um, the fact of the matter is there is a record of all other different kinds of sinners being saved. Right? I mean, Saul of Tarsus, a blasphemer and a persecutor, David, an adulterer, all the other sins you could imagine have a record of somebody finding salvation despite them. You see what I'm saying? But when he killed himself, it's over. There's nothing left. Now, I think there's more going on than that. I think Judas was, as Jesus said, a devil through and through. So there's more here than meets the eye in Judas, but I think that's what he means. It's the one that just finished him off. There's nothing left. And basically, that sin of despair led to a suicide and right into the presence of a condemning judge. And we do know he was lost. And as a matter of fact, I think he's the only human being we know is in hell by name. Only one, which I think is interesting. It's the only one. Any other questions? Yeah. yeah I think maybe it's a matter of degrees, you know. Um, but there is such a thing as spiritual depression. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your trust in God. I think that would be depression or discouragement like that. Despair seems again to be almost of a different nature and kind of cut from a different cloth, although it's similar. It's very godless despair. But discouragement may be actually very God-saturated, but you're just not cutting the mustard. You know, you're not doing well, and so you're very like like we're talking about godly sorrow. There's a lot in the Bible about uh, spiritual depression. Uh, actually, Martin Lloyd Jones wrote a book on on spiritual depression. And Psalm 42 is big. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? You know, Lloyd-Jones says that a lot of the Christian life is preaching to yourself. Talk to your soul. Isn't that what the psalmist is doing there? Come on, soul, what's the matter with you? Get up, come on now. God's still the same as he was last time you felt good about God. He hasn't changed any. Come on, move out now, let's go. So he's kind of preaching to himself, you see. So I think that would be it, maybe. Um, I think intrinsically despair and discouragement may in the end be different, you know, although they act a lot the same. One of them godless and faithless. Yeah, yeah a lot of things can, can come in, that's for sure. And uh, William Cooper, another good example of somebody who, even to the point of, of flirting with suicide, thoughts of suicide, and that can happen. All right, let's keep going. Um, the grieving of the Holy Spirit by the believer is clearly a great hindrance to assurance. Is it not the Spirit that ministers assurance to us? Don't grieve him. <laughs> He's the one who's going to minister assurance to you. Why in the world would you treat him poorly? Uh, the grieving, by not hearkening to his voice, by refusing his counsel, by stopping the ear, by throwing water upon the fire he kindles in, in their souls, by falsely attributing to the Spirit what is to be attributed to men's own passions and distempers. Oh boy, that one slipped by. What do we mean by that? There are times when you have an inclination to do something and you may say, oh, it's the Spirit that's leading me to do it. No, it's not. It's your own lusts and passions. And then you go ahead and give in to it, and then you know you ascribe to the Spirit the thing that came from your own, your own uh, passion and desire. True assurance, therefore, very much comes from Galatians 5, keeping in step with the Spirit. And uh, he gives us a quote here. I'm noting that it's 7.10, and we're only on page 3 of a 14-page outline. So we're going to keep moving. Um, 
the judging of spiritual matters by mere feelings or human reason. Are your feelings and your reason sufficient accurately to judge your spiritual state? Well, you know they're not. How many times have your feelings been out of step? How many times have they been, as one person said, like rebellious children? You know, feelings are frequently out of step with with reality. And so, um, your all things, he says on page four, all differences and controversies that arise in your heart should be ended by the word. If you're resolved to make sense and feeling the judge of your condition, you must resolve to live in fears and lie down in tears. I like that. So basically, when you make your own opinion of yourself and your feelings and your own reason the basis for assurance, you're going to have problems. Now, this one is very strong. The indulging of laziness and carelessness in the Christian life is a great hindrance to assurance. Men are so active in pursuing after the world, but how lifeless in pursuing exercises of grace. Promises of assurance and comfort are not made to lazy people. What does that mean? Well, I'm not having my quiet time, not really you know, going to church much these days. Well, what do you think your assurance is going to look like? It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. When you get lazy in your Christian life and stop doing the things you need to do, um, you can guarantee your assurance is going to go down, 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 down. He says, remember this, that the promise of assurance and comfort is made over not to lazy but to laborious Christians, not to idle but active Christians, not to negligent but diligent Christians. A lazy Christian has his mouth full of complaints when the active uh, Christian uh, has his heart full of comforts. All right, he also says, our service to Christ should be hot with passion and zeal, not lifeless and listless. Never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now notice, this is a sub-point under the heading dealing with laziness. How is a lack of zeal in Christian service a form of laziness? That's right, that's right. Uh, to me, it's you just don't want to stir yourself up. You know, I think that there's a lot of lazy worship that happens. People just come in and they're not ready to worship. Imagine what our singing would be like if everyone came in filled with the Spirit and eager to sing whatever hymn, even if it's not your favorite, Sing it to God and to His glory. What would our worship sound like? I have been in the presence of people like that before. They weren't perfect people. But at the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors at John Piper's church, we sang A Mighty Fortress Is Our God brought tears to my eyes. I'd sung it hundreds of times before that, but never like that. Never like that. And a lot of the guys around me were singing off-key. All right? I was probably singing off-key. But there was a power to that singing because they were singing with zeal, with heat, with fervency. But conversely, if you're not serving God that way, your assurance won't be strong. So that again comes back to that psalm. Stir yourself up. Speak to your soul. Why are you so lifeless, soul? Get up and get moving. Praise God. Move. Come on, sing. Get up. Stir yourself up. You know, he, he talks about heat. He says, be fervent or seething hot in spirit. Seething hot, serving the Lord. That's zeal, right? Oh, there's so many good quotes in here, and I've typed them all out, but I'm not even going to get a chance to read them. So you read them when you get home, or, or even better, read the whole book. Um, the next one, H, is the neglect of duties ordained by God, such as prayer, confession of sin, Bible intake, the Lord's Supper, fellowship, the hearing of the preached word. These are ordinances of God whereby he blesses your soul. If you neglect them, it's like neglecting food for your body. Don't be surprised if you're weak and listless and having problems and getting sick. When you're not taking in the things that God has ordained, the Lord's Supper, the hearing of the Word, worship, fellowship, Bible intake in your private prayer closet, these things are meant to strengthen your soul. If you don't do them, you're going to have problems. And the love of the world is a great hindrance to assurance. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So uh, love of the world is a great uh, hindrance and burden um, to the spiritual uh, health. Top of page five, he says, Solomon got more hurt by his wealth than he got good by his wisdom. Isn't that true? I, I think when I think of Solomon, I think, you know, first and foremost, I think of son of David, and I think that he was uh, also wise and built the temple. But when I really just start to think about his life, there are two words in Chronicles that come across to me. Solomon accumulated. That's it. That sums up his life. He was an accumulator. He was a collector, you know, chariots and horses and wives and gold and silver and thrones and clothes and stuff, right? 
And I think in the end, it led his heart astray. I think his heart was being led astray even before he had foreign wives who worshipped other gods. I think there was just a, a, a problem there. And so uh, I like this analogy. Sicily is so full of sweet flowers that dogs cannot hunt there. <laughs> the scent of the sweet flowers diverts their smell. And ah, what do all the sweet delights and contents of this world do but make men lose the scent of heaven? but divert men from hunting after assurance and from running after Christ in the sweetness of his ointments. We get satisfied. Our nostrils are filled with the scent of the world and we have no interest in following after Christ. That's a big problem. All right, and then finally, the cherishing of secret sins. Obviously, this is a big issue. And this connects back to Owen. If you've got some kind of a secret sin, what he says, the secret cherishing and running out of their hearts to some bosom, darling sin. How many be there that dally and play with sin even after, after they have put up many prayers and complaints against sin and after they have lamented and bitterly mourned over their sins? Many there be that complain of their deadness, barrenness, forwardness, conceitedness, censoriousness, and other forms of baseness and yet are ready at every turn to gratify, if not to justify, those very sins they complain against. No wonder that such people lack assurance." There could be something that's burning in your heart right now, some kind of sin, and you're not putting it to death. And your assurance will not be healthy and strong until you do. I mean, it just makes sense, doesn't it? You can't nurse that sin and expect any good thing from God. And so if you don't have assurance, look to your heart and see if there's some secret sin. Now, the next thing he does in chapter 4 is give us motives to provoke Christians to be restless until they have obtained a well-grounded assurance of their salvation, of their eternal happiness and blessedness. He gives 11 motives. Let's just look through them quickly. First of all, many have been lost who thought they were saved. Ooh, ouch. I actually think one of the most terrifying things in all the Bible is, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, 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 Lord. And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. I never knew you. Now, I think self-deception in the matter of salvation is a devastating concept, isn't it? That, that it would even be possible to deceive yourself concerning your own salvation. Is that possible? Is it possible that you could be self-deceived concerning your salvation? Do you think there are any self-deceived people in America today? I don't know what the stats are. Are we up to 90% born again in our country? I have no idea. I mean, it's incredible. I think there must be self-deceived people, even in churches, especially in churches, perhaps. So if the fact is that that is possible to be self-deceived, wouldn't that be a great motive to kind of get busy on this matter of assurance? That you would know what are true and certain grounds of assurance and not false or presumptions? I would think that would get you busy. It would get you moved, moving. And so he gives us as a motive. The world also is full of deceivers. There are teachers who will tell you you're fine when you're not. They will flatter you. They will tickle, the, tickle your ears and make you feel good about yourself when you're not converted. And because of that, another reason to be moving out in the matter of assurance. Also, assurance delivers from the burdens of cares, fears, and doubts. That's a motivation. Think of the sweetness that would come from just knowing for sure that you're going to heaven. Satan labors to keep Christians for assurance, so that's a good reason. Just anything he hates, do it. You know, That's a, good, a very good motivation. Satan, what do you want to do today? Okay, I just want to do the opposite, whatever it is. You know, So he's trying to keep you away from assurance, so that's a good reason to go for it. Uh, a well-grounded assurance, number five, is of great value to the believer, bringing great joy and delight. Number six, worldlings labor hard to secure the things of this life. Saints should show equal ardor for better things. I like this quote. What riding, running, plotting, lying, swearing, stabbing, and poisoning is used by men of this world to make sure of the poor things of this world that are but shadows and dreams and nothings? Oh, then be ashamed, Christians, that worldlings are more studious and industrious to make sure of pebbles than you are to make sure of pearls. To make sure of those things that, will, that at last will be their burden, their bane, their plague, their hell, than you are to make sure of those things that would be your joy and crown in life, in death and in the day of your account. Why do they work so hard for all those nothings and we do so little in the matter of assurance? And that's what he's, he's reasoning in that way. Kind of, kind of provoking us, saying, they, hey, they, they get up and go to work at 6 o'clock. They're working at it, and it's going to lead them to nothing. You know, maybe you could get up and work a little harder in your Christian life. That's kind of what he's getting at. Number seven, assurance renders burdens light. This is so true. All right, well, what burdens? Any burdens. Look at the Apostle Paul. 
I mean, have you suffered like him? Answer, no. Okay, it's simple. Some things are simple. That one's simple. No, you have not suffered like Paul. This guy led, led a life of suffering, didn't he? A tough, tough life. Every single day getting up to preach the gospel, wondering if he was going to get stoned to death. I mean, amazing courage. Brooks puts it this way. The apostles went through many weaknesses, sicknesses, wants, and deaths. They had nothing and yet possessed all things. They had burden upon burden cast upon them by the churches, by false apostles, by an uncharitable world. And yet they cheerfully bore all burdens without them being a burden through the power of well-grounded assurance. 2 Corinthians 5.1 Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. And then 2 Corinthians 6 Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known and yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. What a great way to go through life. I mean, what a great way to go through health problems. What a great way to go through unemployment. What a great way to go through other physical problems you may have in your life or even relational problems. To go through fully assured of your own salvation sweetens and lightens every burden. So it's well worth it, don't you think? To have a strong assurance lightens every burden. Number eight, God urges Christians to get assurance. So just like number four was Satan doesn't want you to have it, so go for it. Anything God commands you that you should have and pushes you towards, you should do it. So God urges you to have assurance. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 and Hebrews 6.11, evidence of this. Uh, Christians are seriously injured by lack of assurance. By living without assurance, you lay yourselves open to all of Satan's snares and temptations. Yea, you do instigate and provoke Satan to tempt you to the greatest neglects, to tempt you to the strangest shifts, and to reduce you to the saddest straits. You lose the following by lack of assurance. You lose comfort and joy, peace and contentment, boldness and confidence in service if you don't have assurance. And then he gives us ten uh, advantages which accompany assurance. Assurance produces heaven on earth, hence the title of the book, Heaven on Earth. And he doesn't mean it actually brings heaven to earth, but in effect, your heart is living in heaven while you are on earth. Very much like Colossians 3. Set your hearts on things above. So your mind is filled with heaven. It brings heaven down into your hearts when you have assurance. Assurance also sweetens life's changes. Do you get bothered sometimes by how much life changes? I mean, I look even at this church, and do you realize how much turnover there's been since I've been here? It's incredible. And none of, I don't know how many of you will be here five years from now. I don't know if I'll be here five years. I don't know if we'll be alive. This is a changeful world we live in, isn't it? Is there anything you can look at with your eyes and say, now that, right there, now that is permanent. I mean, that, now that's one thing I know will never go. Can you say that? Certainly not after 911. There's nothing like that. You can look at it and say, now he, now she, now that. It's permanent. It's going to be here. That's a burden, isn't it? That's a trouble. Because everything's changeful in this world. Well, somebody filled with assurance can handle that. Because their hearts are set on something that doesn't change. Uh, a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And so he, he, uh, he talks about that. A good quote in there, but we won't take time to read it. Assurance also keeps the heart from desiring the world. Galatians 6.14 is a great verse. May I never boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast except, sorry, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's a, that's a phenomenal verse. Basically, I'm dead to the world and the world is dead to me. When the world looks at me, my life makes no sense. I'm living a foolish life, says Paul. So I'm dead to them. They just think of me as some kind of a condemned criminal or something. Well, guess what the world looks like to me? It looks dead to me. I have no interest in it. And that's what assurance does. It gives you a sense of deadness to it. Assurance sweetens your communion with God. Assurance preserves from backsliding. Now, how does this work? Backsliding is a, is a kind of a domino effect in the Christian life, right? You start to sin, and then the next day you don't check it and go immediately back to walking healthy with God. So you follow one bad day with another bad day. You follow one rebellion with another one. How does assurance stop that process? Well, the thing that causes you to continue straying is thinking God won't welcome you back. 
You stay away from God. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So you're even more and more and more vulnerable to temptation. And so you just start to accelerate in, in, in drifting away from God. I've seen it happen before. But somebody with a healthy assurance is not a perfect person. Assurance is made for people here on earth. People in heaven don't need assurance. They're looking at Jesus face to face. There's no assurance needed there. Who needs hope? Who needs faith in heaven? You don't need these things. But you need assurance here on earth. And therefore, assurance is for sinners, not perfect people. So sinners sin. Doesn't that make sense? Okay, you get that. Right? Sinners sin. That's why they're called sinners. And so when you sin and yet you have a healthy and strong assurance, what are you going to do? You're going to immediately confess your sin come to the throne of grace, receive mercy and grace to help in time of need, you're going to immediately be restored in a healthy walk with God and you're going to continue in your Christian life. But if you don't have a strong assurance, you're going to add sin to sin and you're going to start to drift. Does that make sense? So a good strong assurance is a great uh, protection from backsliding. Assurance also produces holy boldness with God. Um, it makes you familiar and comfortable with God at the mercy seat. Assurance prepares a man for death. It's so grievous to me when people have been in the church all their lives are not ready for death. That bothers me. I don't understand it. I don't understand why churched people die so poorly. And I've seen it happen, and it's been a great grief to my soul. No, no assurance, no, no Christ, it seems, no thinking about resurrection or the blood. No, I mean, none of that. Just they die like pagans, and it bothers me. They don't talk much about Jesus. They say, well, I've had a good run. You know, I don't understand that. I don't. It bothers me when I think about that. Well, we've had well, we've had some good things. We had some good vacations and enjoyed things. And you know, so what about Christ? I mean, He's your only hope. Talk to me about Jesus. I never really knew that much about all that. Oh my goodness. I think that we should die well. I think that we should be. I like this. Look at this. Bottom of page seven. Assurance will make a man sick of his absence from Christ. Did you see that? I'm tired of being away from Jesus. I want to be with him. It's better for me by far to depart this world and see Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's Paul's attitude in Philippians 1. Better by far to die. Better by far. But for you, better for you if I stay because God's using me to do good ministry in your life. And so for me, though I'd rather go, I'm willing to stay. Now that's incredible. What a Christ-like attitude. But he, is he afraid of death? No, he's welcoming it. Bring it on. So assurance helps you die well. Assurance makes mercies taste like mercies. Read about that in the book. I'm not going to talk about it. Assurance gives vigor and energy in the Christian service. That makes sense. Assurance leads to the soul's enjoyment of Christ. And then finally, 11th point, a well-grounded assurance will keep a Christian from being deceived by counterfeits. Now, I'll tell you what. Let's um, take a minute and look at the sheet, the yellow sheet, so that we can know what we mean by counterfeits. Okay? What are marks of regeneration? How can I know if I'm saved. Brooks gives us six differences between true Christians and hypocrites. Okay? Number one, true Christians labor in all duties to be approved and accepted by God, caring very little about human opinion. Paul even says that in Corinthians. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. I don't care about what I think about me. I care very much what God thinks about me. And so a true Christian is going to labor very much to be assured and blessed by God. That's what matters. Approved and accepted by God. Secondly, true Christians labor to get to the very top of holiness. They labor to live up to their own principles. What do we mean by this? A true Christian is never going to say, hey, I've kind of, I'm, I'm kind of where I, I want to be on that whole holiness thing. I'm kind of, I'm there, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm really satisfied. The view is good from here. It's a good place to rest. And I'm content with my holiness. A, a true Christian is never going to say that. And you know why? Because the true Christian knows who the standard is. And the standard is Jesus. And the true Christian is never satisfied until they're dead. And then when they die, they're instantly transformed to be like Jesus. And then they're satisfied. But a true Christian says, get up, I'm still alive, I'm still moving, let's go. Let's still work on holiness. Let's still work on putting sin to death. Let's still work on being like Jesus. Every day, a true Christian, always upward, always pressing on. Paul says, I forget what lies behind and straining toward what is ahead. I'm moving, I'm going. 
That's a true Christian. That's the way he thinks. Thirdly, and then he just starts to address this directly, so I put it in this. True Christian, speaking to you now, is not your greatest desire and endeavor that your sin may be cured rather than covered? Don't you want it out? I mean, gone forever. That's what a true Christian, that's the way he thinks. I don't just want to fix here. I want, I want the thing to be removed forever. I want it, I want it resolved. Not just covered. Now, don't misunderstand the word covered because in one sense I think that's exactly what God does is cover your sin. Blessed is a man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I think that's what he does. Yom Kippur is the day of covering. But that's not what Brooks means here. What he means is kind of papered over, whitewashed. You know how he talks about whitewashed tomb? He said, a true Christian is not interested in whitewash. They want the genuine thing. They want sin really dealt with. Fourth, true Christian... Is not your soul taken with Christ? Aren't you just taken with Christ as the chief above 10,000, as altogether lovely and desirable? We already touched on this earlier. A true Christian's enraptured with Jesus. Jesus is your, he's your hope. He's your righteousness. He's your sanctification. He's everything to you. True Christian can't talk enough about Jesus. There's no too much about him. Christians can get together and just talk about Jesus for hours. They really can do that. They can do that. That's that's what I think of when I think of fellowship. It's not talking about the ball game. Now I don't I don't mind talking about ball games, all right? But that to me isn't fellowship with a capital F. To me, it's let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about what he did. Let's talk about his parables. Let's talk about his miracles. Let's talk about the time he talked to the wind and the waves and obeyed him. Let's talk about when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Let's talk about the Revelation one and the vision of glory. When his head and hair were white like wool and his feet were like burnished bronze and his voice were like the sound of many waters. Let's talk about when he comes back on that great white horse with the hordes of armies behind him and he crushes all evil. I, I just I could go on. Let's just talk about Jesus. And a true Christian is going to be, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's talk. Can't get enough. Number five, true Christian. Are not your greatest and hottest conflicts against your inward pollutions? against those secret sins that are only obvious to the eye of God and to your own souls. Isn't that where it's at? Isn't that your war? Isn't that what you're fighting? You know, Isn't that the thing you'd like dealt with the most? Yes, it is. Even if no one ever finds out, God sees it, and you know it, and you want it done. You want holiness. And then, true Christian, are you not subject to Christ as your head? Willingly? gladly, not like the devils, reluctantly and chafing and kicking, but willingly, gladly, sweetly subject to Christ as your head. Universally subject to him. I'm not talking about perfection, but saying, whatever you want, Jesus, in my life, that's what I want done. I'm not holding anything back. You're my head. I will follow you. Whatever you want, that's what I want. He is, he is your head. Gladly, happily, sweetly submitting. Constantly and unweariedly. It's not a burden to you to walk with Jesus. It's not a burden to you every day to lower your neck and have him put his yoke on you because his burden is easy and his yoke is light and so it's a delight to you. Those six things are not true of non-Christians. Do you see that? And when you look in and you say, yes, that's me. That's me. That's who I am. And you must say that. It's actually a dishonor to God if he's done this in your life for you to say, well, oh, shucks, you know, it's not real. That's not, that means you're taking credit for it. It's nothing you did. These are things he's worked in you. Give him the honor and the glory and you get the joy. That's a good deal, don't you think? He gets the glory in doing these six things in you and you get to feast on the sweetness. He said, actually, it's your duty to suck honey from this honeycomb. It's your duty to be happy about this, that God's done this work in your soul. All right, let's look at the backside. We already looked at the bottom ten, nature of true grace. Eight differences between the prayers of the godly and the ungodly. What might, what might they be? Number one, true Christians trade and deal with God, I like that, in prayer only upon the account and credit of Christ. You realize you don't have, a, you don't have a, a ten cents to deal with God, okay? You're there on borrowed money, on Christ, all right, on his account. That's, you're there, and you don't deserve to be there except from Jesus, but that's enough. You have welcome. Number two, cr true Christians pray more to get off their sins than they do to get out of earthly troubles. They're not looking, get me out of this, get me out of that. They're saying, God, get me out of sin. Get me, I mean, I want purity, I want holiness in my life. Number three, true Christians pray in a constant stream after spiritual and heavenly things. They're hungry for heavenly things. That's what they're looking for. 
not, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? That's not, that's not it. Number four, true Christians look more upon God in prayer than they trust in the act of praying itself. Muslims trust in the act of praying, don't they? They talk a lot about their prayer lives. They pray more than we do. I guarantee they do. Five times a day they do those rote prayers. Have you seen them on TV? They pray more than you. Okay? But they're trusting in the act of prayer. We're trusting in the God to whom we're praying. There's a difference. There's a difference. Number five, true Christians do not give up easily or ever give up praying altogether if they're disappointed and don't get what they want. We, we're never going to give up prayer. Prayer is our language. It's the language of our soul. So we're never going to say, boy, I'm done with that prayer thing. True Christians would never say that. Now, maybe you didn't get what you wanted, and sometimes we're put off in prayer, but we never give it up. Number six, true Christians pray fervently from the heart. Prayer is a heart work for them. It's not, a, it's not an outward show. Number seven, true Christians usually come out of prayer with hearts more disengaged from sin, more vehemently set against sin. And number eight, true Christians do more eye and observe how their own hearts are affected by prayer than how other hearts are affected. So you're seeing what God is doing in your own life through prayer. That's the difference between the prayers of true Christians and the false sham prayers of hypocrites. We are out of time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.